centuries looking at the development of uh, the uh, different religions and so forth. And, and uh, we see from the beginning the, the church of Jesus Christ that he established during his ministry on the earth and the disciples that he won. And then by the time we reach uh, the first part of Acts, there's a membership there, about 120 are gathered together as a body of believers. And, and then, the, of course, the amazing things that happen when the church is empowered on the day of Pentecost and the addition to something that's already there, the addition to uh, the church of thousands that were saved and baptized and added to the church. And so we have uh, the empowerment of the, um, of the church there. The uh, Protestant uh, Reformation had, uh, has maintained several errors, and one of the errors that is within Protestantism is, the, is the, where, where the church began. And they say uh, the Protestant... Uh, position is that church began in the book of Acts uh, on the day of Pentecost, but uh, that is not so. Uh, biblically speaking, if you uh, are careful with the scriptures, you'll find that the church was already uh, operational before the book of Acts and was just empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, in, the, um, in the event of the, of the uh, day of Pentecost. And so uh, the book of Acts is that transitional book where the uh, work of the apostles was still going on and the completion of the scriptures was uh, in in process, and so uh, you have a transitional period, the uh, era of the apostles, where a lot of different things happened, you know, and you had the miracles, and you had the remarkable events of the book of Acts uh, that uh, were completed when the scripture was completed. We talked about how that at that point, then, the, um, the miracles and the signs and the supernatural ability to heal that was given to people and the tongues and the interpretation of tongues and all of these uh, events like that that we read of in the book of Acts were completed. The purpose was completed and the, the word of God became the, um, became the go-to uh, source. Before the word of God was completed, the go-to source were the apostles uh, and, uh, you know, the church there at Jerusalem and the early churches in the book of uh, Acts were the Sources that uh, people went to to try to determine what was true and what was not. Uh, but when the scriptures was given to us and completed through the guidance and the help of the Holy Spirit of God, from that point on, the churches then had the final authority in their hand. They had the ultimate authority of the Word of God in their hand. And uh, with that authority, the, the remarkable spread of the gospel and Christianity t began to take place. And we talked about how along with that there came all the persecutions and there came all the error and there came all the attacks that Satan had in different ways to try to, to destroy the progress of the church. So we've been through that. We're up to the 6th century now. Remember last time we were together, this a couple of weeks back, but we looked at the major uh, influences of the 5th century, the 400s, and we saw that that was where the Catholic Christianity really uh, developed into the form that we could recognize as Catholicism today, and so uh, that happened by the end of the by the end of the fifth century. The Roman Catholic Church was pretty well, you know, uh, identifiable uh, by that time. Uh, there's three factors that uh, were involved in that: uh, the work of Augustine. Augustine was bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. He's a pastor there. He uh, he was saved. Uh, I believe he did, uh, you know, trust Christ as his Savior in the biblical way like we think of. Uh, but as time went by, uh, the influences of uh, Romanism 
were very powerful, and, and uh, he was uh, an intellect, was uh, an individual who was very enamored of, um, of uh, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of uh, you know, uh, worldly wisdom. And so um, he was deeply um, affected by the uh, works of other men who were not uh, Christians at all. Uh, and so that entered into his philosophy of life as time went on. He wrote uh, extensively, and his writings are still existent, uh, existing today. Uh, he's widely read even today. Uh, his first uh, book was uh, one that uh, he detailed his uh, conversion experience and other things, and it was called The Confessions. His, uh, another one of his books, I don't know if it was the second one or not, but it was a, it's probably the most well-known one. It's called The City of God. And in that book, Augustine uh, developed the idea that the church would, uh, uh, would Christianize the entire world eventually and that everybody in the world would eventually be saved and then the kingdom would just be brought in by the work of uh, the church. So that philosophy, it's just not a biblical one, but uh, that was what he developed. That's what he determined. And what he did was he mixed the idea of the church with the kingdom. And he didn't distinguish between the church and the kingdom. The Bible very plainly distinguishes the church from the kingdom and the kingdom from the church, but he didn't see that. He believed that uh, the kingdom was the church and the church was the kingdom. Uh, he came to the point where in the latter part of his life, he was very uh, intertwined with Romanism, Roman Catholicism, and, and he uh, believed that the hierarchy of the Roman church uh, and their political power were the means by which uh, the, the world would be Christianized. And so... It was a philosophy that developed over the next uh, several centuries, uh, the philosophy of uh, conversion by force, you know. And so uh, that philosophy is not something that's new. It's not something that just belongs to the Muslims, but uh, the Romanists had it as well. And so, um, and other, other religious groups practice that philosophy where they're in power uh, and have the authority. They, uh, you know, they were forced conversions and such like that. The Bible never teaches such an idea uh, of uh, conversion by the sword, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, pull out your sword and you say, you know, uh, or if, if you die today, are you ready to go to heaven? You know, so that's not the way we do it. We pull the sword of the word of God out, you know, and we ask him, if you die today, are you ready to go to heaven? And, and we don't kill them if they don't, if they're, if they're not. So, uh, so that, but that philosophy uh, was something that really in its um, early forms was something that was uh, promoted by uh, Augustine's writing, The City of God, and the idea. He rejected the rapture. He rejected the idea that there was a, a literal millennial reign of Christ coming where Jesus would come to the earth and, and uh, catch, up, catch away the saints and that uh, they would be in heaven for a period of seven years while the tribulation took place on earth. He allegorized all of that, and he... Uh, suggested that, uh, you know, that the kingdom already was in his time and, and that they were just fully developing it and, you know, growing it out into to its full form. And so he rejected the rapture. He rejected the tribulation as we know it literally. He allegorized lar large parts of the Bible. And, uh, and as a result of those things, he uh, was, was, of course, at odds with the Donatists. Remember the Donatists? They were our forebearers, the Baptist people, the ones that would 
uh, insist that people be converted before they're baptized and that their baptism would be by immersion, uh, scripturally, uh, they were that crowd. And so uh, the Donatists were really a burr under the saddle of Augustine, and he did not like them at all. In fact, he hated the Donatists and wrote against them and uh, was finally one of the instruments that encouraged the persecution of the Donatists in his, in his lifetime. So uh, uh, that, that was uh, a, uh, a conflict there. He, um, he was one who you need to, if you read him today, if anybody reads him today, you need to be careful uh, because some of the things he says sound very scriptural. He, he says that uh, he taught that salvation was by grace alone. And we say, yes, that's true, amen. We say salvation is by grace, by the grace of the Lord alone, by grace through faith. He said, he said the same thing. But he redefined it. When you read on, you find that he said this grace was channeled through and received through the sacraments that were offered by the Roman church. So you couldn't receive this grace unless you came through Romanism and through uh, the baptism and through the, you know, uh, the uh, sacrifice of the mass. So that was his, um, you know, that was his redefinition of terms. So, you know, when people will read Augustine today, they'll often find terms that you and I would agree with. We'll say, yes, that's, that's so. Uh, but you've got to be careful that you understand his definition of those things uh, before uh, assuming anything. Uh, he, he developed these theologies that really were the under, um, that were undergirding um, Luther's philosophy. And, um, and Luther had a lot of things right, by the way. Uh, but uh, Luther and John Calvin, both of these were individuals that uh, were, uh, you know, had had somewhat different, but uh, but they did uh, uh, they did preach the idea of uh, irresistible grace and uh, that a, a limited atonement and so forth. And these came; the roots of these philosophies came from uh, Augustine, and so. Uh, uh, so, of course, you can understand how the Donatists were at cross-purposes with Augustine's philosophies because they were out trying to win anybody and everybody they could to Christ and, and bring them to the Lord and baptize them and then teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you until, uh, until Jesus came again. So they were trying to fulfill the Great Commission, and that was uh, going contrary to the philosophies of uh, Augustine. Uh, another thing, so the, so the work of Augustine was a factor in the development of Romanism in that 5th century. And then monasticism became very uh, prevalent. Monasticism uh, in the 5th century, you know, came to head. There was a lot of places where uh, people were going into the, uh, you know, we think of them as a guru. He, run, he climbs up to the top of the mountain. He's there by himself, and, and he tries to find wisdom. Well, the, the term that they used was the hermit, and so the idea of the hermit uh, and the idea of this self-denial and self-torment in order to purge oneself from uh, anything that uh, smacks of the world. The idea was complete separation from the world and from the people, uh, all people, you know. And, of course, the Bible doesn't teach monasticism. It doesn't tell you and me to... When, when it talks about separating from the world, it's not saying you guys go and be by yourself and never have any contact with anyone else that's, you know, not committed to Christ the way you are and uh, just isolate yourself, you know, from all others. Well, that's, that's, what the, that's the philosophy of the cultists, you know, who uh, isolates himself and then makes himself an instrument that, uh, that cannot be used by God to, to reach the world. So uh, God wants us to be not 
of uh, the world. He wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. So monasticism is the, really took root in the 5th century, and these various practices, this cloister, cloistered life, the nunneries and the, uh, and the, uh, the monks and the you know, monasteries and such, isolating themselves uh, to dedication to the study of you know, the Greek and the Latin and the uh, writings and uh, these things. And so um, that monasticism really took root uh, well and developed well in the 5th century and was part of the reason why Romanism became so uh, powerful. The third factor in that 5th century that occurred was the fall of Rome. The fall of the Roman Empire left a huge vacuum of power in the world. I mean, Rome up to, you know, 476 when it fell um, it was... Um, was really the controlling influence, the stabilizing influence in the world. When the Roman Empire moved its uh, headquarters, you know, um, uh, from um, uh, from uh, uh, Rome to Byzantium, that uh, began the fall and the separation that eventually took place in the 400s. So you have the invasion of these. First of all, you know, you got Attila the Hun uh, there coming in and his uh, influence there. 450 A.D. Attila the Hun is uh, storming across, you know. Eastern Europe and into Europe and, and, uh, and having his influence on the uh, provinces of Rome that were widely scattered. And then the Germanic bands, uh, various Germanic bands were, were invading, followed by the Goths and the Visigoths and the Barbarians and the Vandals, you know. The term Vandal comes from this band, uh, uh, this tribe that uh, were really invaders that were part of the cause of the fall of Rome. You had the Franks and the Saxons and the Angles. We get the term Anglo-Saxon from the Saxons and the Angles who were uh, who invaded uh, England, and what we now call England was Britain at that time, um, invaded Britain and drove um, uh, Christians um, out, of, um, out of the lower part and the eastern part up into the area we now know as Wales. So um, that uh, all was happening with the fall of Rome. So when that happens... Uh, up steps the one who's already assumed a great deal of political power. The Pope has already reached a place where he's equal with heads of state by this fifth century. And now, now really the Roman Church has taken you know, absolute control in many respects because of the widespread influence of the Roman Catholic Church in that era. So you, uh, you enter into that period of time, uh, the, um, you know, uh, the... Uh, Donatists and the uh, and others uh, that were we would call Anabaptists historically uh, were operating and they were being persecuted. But you know, as just as in the first century, persecution led to the the more rapid spread of the gospel because the Donatists were driven from one area to another, to another, to another. And wherever they went, they, they took the gospel with them. So that was what was going on. In the, and the Donatist churches were spreading and they were growing even under this uh, extensive persecution. Uh, take your Bible to 2 Timothy, if you would. Let's read something here. 2 Timothy, we're talking about the spread of uh, the faith from, um, uh, from the... Uh, First to the, to the fifth century now, and going into the sixth century. But early on, as early as the apostolic era, you, era, you have the gospel making it all the way into Britain. And here is um, something remarkable in Second Timothy four, verse sixteen <clears throat> to verse twenty-two. This is near the end of Paul's ministry, the end of his life. He's writing from Rome, um, and um, uh, Timothy four, verse uh, sixteen to verse twenty-two. 
At my first answer, he said, no man stood with me, for all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known. And here it is, and that all the Gentiles might hear. See, Paul got it. Paul understood that God wanted all the Gentiles to hear the gospel. And that was his driving force all of his life. He wanted to get further and further and further out. He wanted to go to the Isles. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to go to Britain. He wanted to go to Wales. He wanted to go all those places where he knew the gospel had never been preached before so that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord uh, shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom, he, uh, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now he says this, Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus I have left at Miletum sick. And he's really listing a, a number of his, um, of his uh, co-workers in the ministry there. Erastus was uh, one I've mentioned to you before. Was the, he was the um, financial secretary. He was like Callie. He was the financial secretary, but he was over the whole town of Corinth. And so uh, uh, he was the treasurer of Corinth. And, and um, Erastus now is a convert. He's, he's uh, doing the work of ministry there. He's, he's back in his hometown, uh, but doing the work of the ministry rather than being the treasurer of the city. And so um, he says, uh, do thy diligence to come before winter. Um, Eubulus greeteth thee, and uh, here we go, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. But these two, uh, two of this list were husband and wife. Pudens and Claudia were husband and wife. And remarkably, they are mentioned in some of the earliest historical documents as, the, as a couple that the wife, Claudia, was actually from uh, Britain and had come to this part of the world and had married uh, Pudens. And they were burdened for their homeland and went back to it. And we have several accounts from letters uh, that are still existing and historical accounts that indicate that uh, this couple went with the gospel to Wales uh, and, uh, and preached the gospel there and began to see churches established early on. Now, this was still under the Roman uh, England at that time. Uh, Britain was completely under Roman control. Uh, archaeologists now are are just now uh, uncovering with the dry seasons we've had. They're uncovering uh, settlements, Roman settlements. They're finding now in, in unusual places in England where where uh, they once dominated that uh, that isle. And so uh, uh, they were there, and they were the stabilizing influence in that, at that place. And the gospel was, uh, they did allow people to, you know, preach the gospel. The Roman government, uh, you know, at that time didn't, didn't completely squelch um, uh, the, the freedom of religion, and especially in these far-reaching territories uh, such as uh, uh, Britannia. And so you have these two going there and, and out of, right out of the scriptures, and it's about A.D. 120 that uh, is the approximate time that uh, they're ministering there in uh, Britain and, and seeing churches established. So that goes on. And by the time you reach this 5th century, there's hundreds of churches in, uh, in England and um, all over the southern and, and west, western part 
and in Wales as well, but when the uh, Roman Empire falls, the, um, all the Roman settlements, all the Roman um, uh, the legion that was there in, in um, Britain pulled out. And so you have the entrance then uh, right following that of the Angles and the Saxons, which really became the, you know, rooted in, and they brought with them, of course, their pagan culture. And so the culture moved from, uh, you know, the influence of Christianity to having the ever-increasing influence of paganism with the Angles and the Saxons coming in. Uh, and, and, you know, you had the Viking hordes from the north and so forth. So you had these things occurring and these multiple gods and, and uh, darkness spreading again over those places by, this, by the time of the 5th century uh, and, and that. But in that same era, in the same 5th century, there's a, an evangelist by the name of Patrick. <laughs> Uh, he's come to be known as Saint Patrick, and we have we wear our green, uh, and the Irish have claimed the, the Roman Catholic Church has claimed him, but actually he's a Baptist. You know, if you read about uh, Saint Patrick and you read the history, you find remarkably that he certainly was not. In fact, he, in fact, the Roman Catholic Church did not even enter Ireland until about a hundred years after Patrick was dead. Um, but Patrick was uh, originally from uh, Ireland, was uh, uh, was uh, captured and uh, made a slave and was in Gaul, which is France, for a time. And uh, over some events, ex- escaped, went, uh, went uh, to Britain and was uh, heard the gospel, was converted. I believe it was converted, in, if I'm not mistaken, in France, in Gaul. Uh, and then when he was freed, when he got free, he returned to, um, to Ireland and uh, began to preach the gospel there. Ireland was entirely pagan at that time. Uh, when he got there and uh, began to, he took 12 men with him, 12 uh, preachers with him. And they, by the time I, uh, Patrick was finished with his ministry and when he died uh, in 465 AD, he had, they had seen over 300 uh, churches established. So these were Bible-believing churches. These were churches that you and me would recognize and say, hey, I'd, I'd call that a Baptist church. They didn't have the name Baptist over the sign or anything. Uh, they were simply a Christian church at that time, but they were called by uh, the Roman church. They were called Anabaptists, rebaptizers, and so that's where the, of course, where the term uh, originated. But, uh, but that, uh, that was one of the events that happened in the 5th century. The 6th century begins the Dark Ages, you know, uh, from 500 to 1500 A.D., the rise of papal power, and the, uh, from that time uh, that uh, papal power became well established to the time of the dawn of the Reformation in 1500, you've got what's been uh, called the Dark Ages, where uh, knowledge was suppressed, and, and uh, you know reading was suppressed and discouraged. The reading of the Bible was was uh, forbidden and all of those things. And so you have this dark cloud come over the, uh, come over the civilized world at that, at that particular era, uh, that whole millennium. But all the non-conforming people and all the non-conforming churches, uh, you know, they didn't go out of existence. They were just forced into obscurity. They were forced into, you know, the backwoods and to faraway places and out-of-the-way places, but they still flourished. Uh, under the preaching of the gospel through all of that time. So, uh, no, the light didn't go out, you know. It got, it got hidden and it got uh, put aside and it got made obscure, but the light of the gospel never went out. Those that were outlawed uh, and persecuted, you know, um, were uh, driven to places that further away. The Donatists from that point, from the 6th century, the Donatists show up in Spain and they show up in northern Italy, 
you know, and the Alps are coming on down from toward uh, toward Rome, but in the north part, northern part of Italy, which was much more extensive uh, at the time. But uh, they're up in the mountains, there in some of the, uh, in the in the valleys. They show up in uh, in what's now in Gaul, what's now France. So you have uh, the spread of those things going on. Now, on the Roman Catholic side of things, Pope Gregory is the most um, well-known pope of the of that era. Uh, his reign was from 590 to 604. So the beginning of the, the end of the 6th, the beginning of the 7th century. Uh, he is known for a number of things. The Gregorian calendar is uh, related to Pope Gregory. And uh, we, you know, still, we still use the Gregorian calendar. Um, before that, it was the Julian calendar. And so uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church corrected some of the, you know, um, some of the things that made the calendar get out of date so quickly in the Julian calendar and added uh, the circumstance we have now where you have the leap year every four years and that kind of thing and made the months of the uh, calendar what they are today and named them what they are and so forth like that. So all of that developed uh, under the, in the um, imperial reign of um, Gregory. Uh, he is the one that really, um, it, was, it isn't that it didn't exist before that, but he's the one that insisted as a dogma that the priesthood be celibate. And so that the celibacy of the priesthood really came about and was institutionalized in the 6th century. So uh, take your Bible, you're in 1 Timoth uh, Timothy or 2 Timothy, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and um, we can see how this is a contradiction of what the Scripture teaches. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 3. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through verse 3. He said, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here it is, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So he's referring to events that uh, are common among those that depart from the Scriptures, and one of the things that uh, he mentions is the idea of for forbidding to marry, uh, celibacy. And so that was something that uh, Pope, Pope Gregory uh, really institutionalized in his reign. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, um, and then uh, verse 2 and verse 9 in particular, 1 Corinthians 7. And um, we don't have time to read the whole uh, passage there, but I'll highlight a couple of them here. First Corinthians 7. Now, verse 2 is a good one. For, uh, now, now, concerning the things where we, uh, you wrote unto me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. <laughs> so uh, any of you fellows, uh, you better scoot over a little more there. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, but uh, of course, the context is the you know is the sensual uh, aspect of things without without the uh, uh, without the uh, marriage the the sensual uh, touching of a woman. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, it's good for man not to touch the woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So this is Paul writing in the uh, era of the Corinthians, and so he's writing. Of course, the context has to do. You can tell from the. Uh, from the second verse, what the context is about not touching a woman. And then in verse 9, he says, But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better for them to marry 
than to burn, to burn with lust and so forth. So uh, he says, you know, for the, because of the times as they are, he said, I would that people would be like me. And Paul was, uh, and Paul must have been married at some point, but his wife died or, or uh, that's probably the case. Uh, he must have been married at some point because that was a requirement of the Pharisees. Uh, so it is assumed that his wife died and he is alone in the ministry now. He never remarries after that and he never seeks a wife. And he, the reason why is he says this. He says, because I can give 24-7 to the Lord uh, and devote my, all my time to the Lord. He said, if you're married, you, you, can't, you shouldn't do that. He said, you need to devote some time to your wife and the wife needs to devote some time to her husband and you need to devote some time to each other. And so there's no way that you can serve the Lord in the capacity I'm able to because I'm not uh, committed to a wife and I can do that. But, uh, but he said, uh, you know, if, it, if an, a man can't contain, if he it doesn't have that ability to control uh, that aspect of his life, he said it's way better for him to go ahead and get married, serve the Lord as he can, uh, you know, uh, even in these times that are difficult. It was difficult in, in this era, this time with the persecutions. It was hard to raise a family. It was... It was a heartbreaking thing to, you know, to suffer the persecution of separation of uh, families and husbands being dragged off to jail and so forth like that. And Paul just said, you know, it'd be easier just because of what we got to face, uh, you know, if we, if we didn't have the heartbreak of broken families, uh, you know, and, and wives having to see their husband uh, given, given torture and, and given jail and husbands having to see that other wives, their children, you know, he's, he recognized the seriousness of that, and that was the context in which he suggested, uh, I would that people would be like me. But he said, if not, then they need to marry. So he said, uh, you know, to avoid fornication, every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. And so obviously this is contrary to Gregory's appeal to the priesthood to be celibate. And probably the greatest single factor that's brought down the, uh, you know, the, the sexual uh, sins of uh, Romanism uh, the widespread, you know, corruption in the priesthood. Probably the greatest single factor is this stupid rule, you know, that uh, the uh, man, uh, priest should be celibate. Uh, it, is, uh, it is certainly contrary to what the scripture teaches. And so, but that occurred um, with, with um, Gregory. Um, he also established the doctrine of purgatory. He, it, was, it was around, I mean, people believed that there might be a purgatory, but he, he put it, in, he canonized it into Roman Catholic uh, Church law. So um, he, he made that, you know, the, the prerogative. So what happened after that, of course, they encouraged prayers for the dead because somebody's in purgatory, you can pray them out of purgatory was the philosophy. The Bible never mentions that anywhere. Uh, the scripture never teaches such a philosophy, but that was what was adopted, uh, prayers for the dead. Of course, following after that, it, there were prayers for the dead, and then there were masses that were said for the dead. And what you could do, uh, they developed a system where you could pay money to the priest, and he would, uh, for that amount of money, would say another mass. And you could, you could buy as many masses, sayings of mass as you wanted, hundreds of them, you know, thousands of them if you want. And supposedly every, every time mass was said, you shortened the length of the sentence in purgatory of the person in purgatory. So... So this became a real moneymaker uh, for the church. And, um, and, and if, you, if you, you know, think it's uh, far-fetched, I want you to read the testimony of uh, Chinique, who wrote the book uh, 50 Years in the Church of Rome. He was a Roman Catholic priest for 50 years. Um, and one of the things that finally 
was the straw that broke the camel's back with him was this was going on. He was ministering in Canada. He was a devoted priest. He loved the Lord. He loved the Bible. And he, his hope was that he could, uh, you know, uh, change Roman Catholic Church to be biblical. And, of course, it was, a, uh, it was something he never, he found he never could have, could have possibly accomplished. But uh, that was his desire. So he wasn't, he wasn't a corrupt priest. He wasn't an individual that... Uh, you know, uh, just took advantage and so forth. Uh, but he saw that all around him. And one of the things that he really hated was he ministered to many, many poor people in his little village. And these poor people would scrape together what money they could. They would go to one of the priests in the, uh, in the parish there and they would pay the money uh, every chance they got for the priest to say uh, a mass for their... And they, the priest had many, many requests and they got tired of even doing it, you know, because they actually had to go through the rigmarole of doing it. And so they got tired of even doing it. And what they found out, what the priest dis discovered, was that the priest in France would do it for half of the cost that they would do it for. So, so what they did was they would charge the money here in Canada, and they would send the name to the priest in France. They didn't even really know if they did the Mass or not, but uh, for half the money. So they would make... Uh, a little profit on each saying of the mass for the purg for getting the person out of purgatory, and they were getting wealthy by this means off the poor village people that were paying these uh, sums. And so, Chinaquay pointed this out, and and uh, this uh, travesty, you know, uh, and uh, the robbing of the poor, uh, in his book, Fifty Years in the Church of Rome. Get the book, read it. You'll see some remarkable things there uh, that uh, come to come to light in it. But that's uh, at the conclusion of the sixth century. That's what we're coming to. And we're entering in now to where the, uh, where the persecuted churches are, are going to be uh, spreading even more rapidly as we get into the 7th century. We're going to, going to see some new groups in France, the Albigenses and the Waldensians. We're going to see uh, some remarkable things happening there too, as well as the ongoing persecution. So we'll stop at that point and uh, go ahead and have a, have a, a moment of prayer here. Let's, uh, uh, I want you to, would you, if you would, add these to your prayer list. I've been given these. Um, continue to pray for Laura. This is Bonnie's daughter who lost her husband just a couple of weeks ago from a heart attack. He was only 57, and so uh, devastating for Laura. And so uh, Bonnie has been there with her, kind of ministering to her there across the, the – she lives over on the coast, over near the coast over there, uh, over the mountain. So pray for Laura, Bonnie's daughter, that the grace of God in this time. She is saved. She does know the Lord, and she's uh, – uh, able to uh, take care of herself, but uh, just pray for Laura and the family there, extended family. Pray for 